Hello and welcome to Super Excited with Stefan Roost. I'm Mike, the facilitator of this podcast. In this episode, Stefan talks to Jeffrey Tucker. Jeffrey Tucker is the founder of the Brownstone Institute, which looks to influence a post-lockdown world by generating new ideas in public health, philosophy, science and economics. He is also currently a columnist for the Epoch Times. In this episode, Stefan and Jeffrey discuss the incentive for governments not to change course, separating money and state, how the coming recession will have profound employment consequences and the, the birth of a new world. Enjoy this episode. Hey everybody, Steph, I'm back and yet again, and as always, super excited today to be with a really influential economist that's been around and written a lot about new types of models that economies and nations can pursue, but also has been in Bitcoin really early on. Jeffrey Tucker, thank you. That's nice to be here. Thank you. Yeah. Um, nice to have you here. And, and I, you know, sort of love to hear about you. But before we go into it, I'm going to ask you maybe a couple of different questions. And um, one of those questions, just to put you a bit off guard, is uh, what was the last movie you went to go and see? <laughs> Um, I have an answer for that, and it is the 2010. You mean go to see or just saw? Because we oh, I, just, I, saw, I, just saw, yeah, yeah that's the, uh, the 2010 version of the picture of Dorian Gray, which hmm. was a pretty good. I don't usually like movie versions of the picture of Dorian Gray because the whole the whole story is so steeped in sort of spirituality and phantasmagoric imaginary worlds and and it's not clear what's real and what's what's not and when you make a movie you have to make everything kind of real uh, so it kind of mostly ruins it but this one did a pretty good job they rearranged the plot a little bit but not in a way that would you know go outside the bounds of artistic license uh, i think is the best uh, uh, movie version of drawing gray uh, i've i've ever seen and it's a and it's a, it's a great story and it's a great great metaphor for i don't know what's happened to governments around the world <laughs> they look pretty they look great but they're doing evil things then they're really corrupt <laughs> brilliant which is going to set the stage for where we want to take this so. <laughs> uh, you know sort of and then you know of course one of the other things is i love i love our readers to you know on the one hand stretch their imaginary sort of capabilities but also always be learning right one of the things that is really important to me is and i think to the readers and the community is how can we educate ourselves and, and what should we be reading and what sources should we be going to to educate mm -hmm. ourselves and so one of the things i love is what's a favorite book that you have maybe one that's right by your bedside right now or one that you recommend people should be reading that's not your own <laughs> Uh, right. Uh, well, <laughs> uh, uh, I'm torturing myself these days by reading every uh, uh, autobiographical account of anybody who was at any level involved in the catastrophic uh, move two and a half years ago to lock down yeah. uh, the country. And this is extremely important. Um, I'm, I'm, I approach all these books as if the writer is sincere. That yep. may be right or wrong, but to try to crawl into their heads, which is a scary experience, actually, because uh, uh, di di dictators don't don't typically see themselves as as bad guys. You know, um, they imagine that they're the wise ones and everybody else is stupid, and they have the the great plans that everybody should comply. Anything that goes wrong uh, is because because they were betrayed or because people didn't comply enough. But uh, the, these books are, are very strange because uh, they, the, 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 people, the people who write them never admit error unless and to the extent that they made it on camera so the world could see it. And then they'll admit it in their books. But apart from that, it's, it's remarkable. To crawl into the head of a person who believes that uh, he or she should be running an entire country or should be running really the entire world, and that in his or her own head, uh, 
you know, they have they have all answers to all questions roiling around. And, 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 and the only problem with the world is that some people were skeptical, didn't give them enough resources, didn't give them enough power, didn't have enough confidence in their ability. They always inevitably presciently see what happens when you decline to go along with them. They never take responsibility for the, for the after effects and are remarkably uh, lacking in any kind of capacity for self-doubt. Yeah. So... Um, I'm, I'm, I'm consumed with these things because right now, because I think it's important, not that I will ever understand it, but it's important at least that we try to understand what, what is the mind of a tyrant, you know, and, uh, the, the tyrant in the, in the in the case that I'm in the book I'm currently reading, um, is Deborah Burks, who I'm not sure how well known she is around the world, but from, for, from the American point of view. She was the main architect of, of the U.S. lockdowns and, and the person who was primarily responsible for tricking Trump into pulling the trigger and thereby setting off a chain of events um, uh, all, all, really all over the world. Because, you know, the U.S. was, I would say, the third country in the world to, uh, to lock down. And when the U.S. Locked, locked down, many, many countries all over the world said, well, I guess since the U.S. is doing it, we have to do it also. So she... She was she was the one really more than anybody else, and uh, she goes through day by day how she she managed to do this through trickery and, and lies and astonishing wow. level of uh, of uh, intellectual uh, pretense and somehow manages to bang out this five hundred page book without a, 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 a sentence revealing any level of of, of self doubt. And I was very curious, I'm probably going on too long, but I was very curious about her thinking. Like, why would you think that locking down is the answer to a widespread respiratory virus? And, and she spends very little time trying to explain it, but as best I can understand, it all grew out of her experience with AIDS. Now, with AIDS, there's... Um, uh, high severity, low prevalence, but a long period of latency. So you can carry this bug for a, long a very long, long a, a very long time. Yeah. So maybe years, yeah. right? Um, while spreading it. So, so the the latency consideration there is is what interrupts the normal trade-off you would get between severity and prevalence in any in any any kind of virus uh, situation. So latency is is what introduces the element of, of mystery. And and so for her she went into the 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 the, the understanding of SARS-CoV-2 with the presumption that it had a long period of latency at that at that time, the outside it was considered to be fourteen days. And by the way, we know a coronavirus would typically have a latency period of two or three days, just like common cold, just like mom taught us all, right? Yeah, exactly. But still, the World Health Organization was saying fourteen days, and so she said, "Oh my God!" So for fully two weeks, you can have COVID and spread it. So uh, this is a lot like AIDS. Okay. Not really, but that's what she believed. She said, and she says in the book, we knew how to prevent AIDS. It was through a cha behavioral changes. changes. And primarily, that is using personal protective equipment like condoms. Okay. That's a model. Long period of latency. The way to, you have to stop it. You can stop it. And the way to stop it is by adjusting, is by protective uh, materials. By, yeah, is, is through, through condoms and, and changes in behavior. Yeah. That was her model. So if you think about it that way, what she did was she believed that like a condom should be put over the entire <laughs> world economy. <laughs> that was basically it. And so from then on, she, that, right? This is, you know, th this is her thinking. We can control the spread of COVID through behavioral changes and 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 condom-like things. And so, what is a condom-like thing in the case of respiratory virus? It's a it's a mask. It's social distancing. It's capacity limits. It's limits on travel. It's making you sit in a box and 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 do nothing for for as long as it takes until what? 
you know, that was always the question in my mind. What happens after you see that? Um, and in the case of AIDS, you know, uh, AIDS is sort of ge- generative, uh, re- uh, 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 degenerative, but generative in the sense that certain certain b- behavioral strains, I mean, if you believe this, give rise to uh, this disease, which we can otherwise completely avoid by going about our normal lives. That is not the case with COVID. Everybody's going to get it. So she, she completely misdiagnosed the nature of the pathogen and therefore got the solution completely wrong. She wanted an AIDS-like solution for what really amounts to a, a widespread virus. And she knew this. She knew she was wrong. When did she know as- that she was wrong throughout this whole book? I mean, when did she know? Was yeah. it right at the beginning? Was it halfway through? No. Was it, no. you know, sort of once it, the lockdown has already happened and sort no, of... It, yeah, so this is what's re- remarkable about this because she knew she was wrong from April of 2022 because okay. a, a big seroprevalence study came out of California. And what this study did is it, 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 it tested people for, for antibodies in Northern California and Southern California and like, I don't know, let's say a thousand uh, random sampling of, of, for seroprevalence and dis- discovered that Many people already had uh, a resistance to the pathogen because they had already been exposed. Now, so what what that discovery did is it blew up her entire model. Her entire model. It 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 showed this virus cannot be stopped. That it's got um, uh, normal uh, immune granting properties like any other coronavirus. In other words, it's a text, textbook respiratory virus, right? No, no different from any other, maybe a little bit more severe with some stranger symptoms, but otherwise it behaved like a normal. So what was interesting about that, now you've got to consider this. If you were primarily responsible, uh, 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 say a month or six weeks earlier, for single-handedly destroying billions of lives, shredding the Bill of Rights, wrecking schools, uh, crushing businesses, causing governments to spend trillions and trillions of dollars. Uh, If if that was your doing, and, and then a small study comes out that raises fundamental questions about whether you were right about anything, are you inclined to change course? I don't think so. You go the opposite way. You, uh, you, you burrow down yeah. and you denounce yeah. and you deny. And so she, so she looked for every possible conceivable problem with the study, debunked it, assigned reporters to uh, smear the guys who wrote it, looked at their funding sources. It was brutal. It was, that study was suppressed so she could continue to persist and go down her, her, her road. I don't know how she slept at night. Well, yeah, I mean, I think what my view is that a lot of people – we're very eager to shut down the economies, um, a lot of politicians specifically, um, but they did not think of how difficult it is to restart an economy. I think to shut it down is a lot easier. How do you get the right people? And we're still suffering a large extent, the consequences of that shutdown, being able to get people to go and do jobs that were done before and now don't need to be done anymore or have to be retrained and reskilled for those specific types of jobs. And um, that's right. Yeah. There's the, the, the problem here is ultimately theoretical. I think what, what happens is, and you can see this in the Burke's book for her, there were two buckets of, of concern. One was public health, yep. meaning lives. Yep. And the other was um, e- economics. Yep. She, about which she doesn't understand anything, yeah. and and she just kind of leaves it to the economists. Uh, she sees that as a bright, shiny object, you know, a you know economic vitality. People who care about stock markets and bank accounts and you know that kind of stuff. Whereas she, the great woman, cared about about human life. So so she, for her, it was like life versus casino. Yeah. Um, and so you might as well shut down the casino. What's the problem? Shut down the casino a couple of weeks, a month, six weeks, a year. I mean, you can always restart it. Yeah. So that's what she, so she, she, I mean, the part of the problem comes down to this word economy because it, it, 
it conveys a, a kind of mechanistic like structure, like a machine that runs. Uh, whereas the truth is, when we speak about the economy, we really are talking about human lives yeah. and and how we manage to navigate uh, our way through a world of scarcity in and and a and, and a and a world that looks very prosperous and civilized, but is always one step away from the state of nature. She never thought of it that way. She thought it was just something like there was a switch on the wall somewhere. You know, you just turn it on, you turn turn it off, and turn it on again. And uh, it was dopey beyond belief. I actually blame, um, you know, the economists themselves are are in an interesting place because they did not protest uh, the lockdowns nearly yeah. Yeah, yeah, like they should have. However, in her account, the uh, the White House has its own economics team uh, called the um, Council of Economic Advisors. And it was the Council of Economic Advisors in the end that managed somehow to uh, convince uh, the president, uh, Trump at the time, uh, that this was the wrong course. And it was they who worked behind, mostly behind the scenes to to stop this disaster from from getting worse of course the damage was already right. done but, but by the summer of, of 2020 they had successfully undermined uh, the the consensus within the White House uh, for 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 lockdowns and so in a sense kind of God bless them I know several of those people by the way and I knew they were frustrated beyond belief having a political job like that is not just an intellectual project it's also a very much a strategic one so they didn't they didn't know when to speak or how to speak, and they wanted to reserve, especially in government, right? You get you get a very limited amount of capital that you can spend day to day. So they tried to figure out, yeah, they tried to figure out, yeah, they tried to figure out, well, if I get the president's ear, I probably have 90 seconds. What should I say? You know, and they waited far too long, but finally they did move. So in a sense, even though economists didn't speak out like they should have, they did finally uh, save the day. But I think one of the things that, that really stood out for me throughout this whole shutdown was, and there is a lot of echo on, 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 on actually going back to work, right? What does it mean? We had two to three years where we shut down a large portion of factories, restaurants, transportation, you name it, on a national level, on a global level. And, and ultimately, we paid everybody money, or the governments then printed a lot of money and paid everybody money for doing nothing. And so where does that money come from? And still today, all of a sudden, we now have inflation, and we're seeing governments subsidize you know, and give people inflation protection dollars, right? So we're printing $17 billion in California so that they, people can afford gas at the pump. You know, so it's and we're giving away the funds. Have we forgotten how what it means to actually contribute to a society and work? Um, you know, what's what's your view on that? It's very it's a very primitive solution, <clears throat> and uh, 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 really takes us back to the ancient yeah. world level of stupid, stupidity. You know, it's it's and a part of the reason. I mean, the Chinese have a saying. Like the Chinese have a saying. Sorry, it's just you know, if if I give you a fish, I have to give you a fish every single day. If I teach you to fish, I only need to teach, teach you to fish once, and then you can go and catch your own oh. fish. Right. That's right. That's right. Uh, somehow we 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 even in the twenty first century, yep. we imagined that we discovered a magic machine that could make prosperity just by pushing, pushing buttons. buttons. Uh, uh, and, and you're right. There was a, a direct relationship there between how much money uh, governments allocated to uh, stimulus payments and Corona uh, COVID COVID relief, and and the uh, the debt that was thereby created because the stuff hadn't been collected in taxes, obviously, and the purchases of this debt by central banks, and therefore the ballooning of their balance sheets. It's almost a dollar for dollar trade-off, particularly in the US situation, amounting to about six six trillion dollars. Yeah. And and what it did was initially created a fascinating uh, uh, balance sheet for business. So you had a lot of businesses that were shut down, but a lot of others that are operating. The the costs of their of their doing business fell dramatically uh, for the large part of twenty twenty 
and we saw very little inflation yep. taking place in the, in the consumer price level. Uh, bump forward six months, that the, that trend started to flip starting in 2021. Um, now, uh, the producer prices started to rise more and more and consumer prices too. But the, crucially, the gap that separated the difference between producer prices and consumer prices began to widen further and further and further. So right now, and the PPI was just released this morning for the U.S. dollar, and and and, and it's rising. Uh, let me see if I can remember. Eleven point three percent per annum, wow. which is still much larger than the consumer price index. Which I think the last look at it was nine point one. So so you see this gap. So if you can imagine, producer prices in twenty twenty were lower than we're rising at a much slower rate than consumer prices. So build uh, producers built up a lot of, of inventory, started paying a lot of uh, uh, new wages, built up large management structures, expanding, good times all around, stock markets were rising. Then that inverted and producer prices began to rise very dramatically, very high on a growing level. We had the second highest, uh, uh, June was the second highest increase in producer prices on record. Uh, the first highest was just only recently in March, and and consumer prices have been chasing that all, all along. So if people are wondering if there's any chance that producer prices are going down, the answer is no, because the lag is built in there. You would typically have an 18-month lag. So now what's interesting about this is um, this took uh, central bankers by by surprise. They They didn't somehow they didn't anticipate this but that to me that's the funny thing right before the the whole crisis and before a lot and during the time of printing initially when covid first hit there was this big talk of mmt modern money theory right we can print at any time yeah. and we can retract from the market at any time and then all of a sudden now we're in this situation where yeah, I mean, what's your views on MMT, given your background and 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 and, and your you know putting on your economist hat? Yeah, well, I mean, it doesn't even need to be refuted. It's so stupid, <laughs> it's, it's ridiculous. Uh, but the, a more interesting question to me is like, where did MMT theory come from? And yeah. uh, the 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 basis for that was the experience in two thousand eight, because we had a big financial yep. crisis and we uh central banks around the world all over the world engaged in what you know every every generation has a new name or every 10 years we come up with a new name for inflate the money supply in those days they called it quantitative easing qe1 qe2 yep. qe3 and, and, and people were saying well you yeah you can't do this it's going to produce inflation and it didn't okay so then then you have to ask the question well why why did we not see the kind of response in producing consumer prices after 2008. And the answer comes down to uh, uh, the, the way in which the institutions uh, absorbed the new money creation in a way that was different from the most recent experience. So back in 2008, uh, at least in the U.S. case, uh, the central bank was paying a higher rate of return on uh, on 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 uh, the the assets, then the the banking system could get in the loan markets. What that meant is most of the new money, and there was a lot of it, went into what we call in the crypto world cold storage. So it never became hot money on the street. So it just it just stayed there, making balance sheets of banks look yeah. really pretty. But it, but it, but it never came into use. You could say it just went into the mattresses of of, of banks. So it never it never really became hot money on the streets. Now the the money supply technically was expanding, but it wasn't being deployed um, as part of the velocity of exchange. So therefore, it didn't turn into price increases. What that did is it, it created a kind of an arrogance on the part of central bankers, and then and of course their academic apologists, you know, with the MMT crowd. Suddenly they were like, oh well, see. You can print all the money you want. There's no downside to it. Well, what people didn't understand was that there was a profoundly important institutional reason why we didn't see a response in uh, consumer prices. And that was due to this, uh, the, the, the way central banks were paying interest on, on the reserves of the, of the banking system, and therefore keeping it out of the balances of producers, yeah, out of circulation. All that was different this most recent round. So this time... 
uh, the 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 balance sheet ballooned by the Fed. All you know, right? The you know, central banks can write checks uh, at, with and never and never bounce. But instead of just staying in in cold storage, it was dropped directly into the wallets of producers and consumers. Uh, around the U.S. Uh, and all over the, the world, so it's a completely different str- st- strategy uh, of of monetary expansion was used in 2020 as versus 2008. And then, of course, we saw the inevitable result, the, the traditional one that we would expect. You know, the equation exchange went into operation. We saw the lag. Uh, you know, high credit expansion, a little bit of a lag, suddenly prices are responding, and now we're dealing with a very old-fashioned problem of, of regular old-fashioned devaluation. And, and do you find that the result of just raising interest rates is the solution, or do we need to now, given how the society has evolved, how much more technology we have in the industry, and, and how much faster we move, and how many alternative currencies there are available, is there not a different model that we need to be approaching versus just interest rates? Yeah, okay, so those are yeah. really two questions. I mean, the first one concerns, uh, does raising interest rates really fix the problem? Uh, I think what, uh, uh, the, no, no right? the answer is no, it doesn't. What it what it does is it, it drives yeah. a recession and and an economic downturn, and we're seeing the effects of that. The, the money has to become, to use language we've learned from immunology and virology, has to become endemic. So the, infl- the prices have to adjust. There's just no getting around it, and they will. Um, now, at some point, that will stop. I don't know when, you know, that's anybody's guess, but at some point, that will stop. Uh, so the question is, like, you know, is there any system uh, that you can implement from a macroeconomic uh, point of view um, that would cause uh, uh, the, the bite of this endemicity that we're going to obtain to be to be reduced to reduce the pain and the the answer is yes and it's called economic yep. growth okay M- meaning you need to inspire a, a tremendous yes forward push. forward push in the realm of of, of wealth wealth creation to in a, at, at a level that would outrun the rates of inflation um, and what are the conditions that would enable that and I think we know what they are right so you need dramatic tax cuts you need security of ownership. Uh, you need um, uh, massive deregulation to unleash enterprise, all R&D. the kinds of things we began to see in 1981. Yeah, right. And 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 confidence in the future because you're living with regimes that that are in favor of enterprise and 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 really desire wealth creation. So none of those conditions exist, and I I don't know right now. I mean, we're nowhere near. Uh, inspiring that kind of intellectual revolution that would that would cause those kind of regime changes to enable uh, further wealth creation. So I'm afraid we're going to be stuck with uh, uh, a, a deep uh, a recession with high inflation, at least for the next uh, a couple of years, if not, if longer. not longer. Uh, so that's a, that's a that's so that's a catastrophe. And it's going to have very profound political effects. And we saw this in Sri Lanka, but, but, but you know, you're seeing all it really the all over the world. And and right now in the U.S., I mean, the U.S. president's uh, popularity is, is falling to like low. A, is, it barely gets a third, yeah. So now the second issue is, is there any long-term solution? I mean, the long-term solution is exactly that which Hayek explained, F.A. Hayek, Friedrich Hayek explained in 1974, which is to completely uh, somehow drive a wedge between government and 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 money uh to separate the two institutions completely because private sector can much better manage money we happen to have a really good tool now for doing that and it's called a, a blockchain and it's and it's and it's token-based uh, crypto uh, uh, sector so it's entirely possible in other words if we shut down central banks today and really uh, you know, did a hands-off approach and just let uh, the crypto sector uh, 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 manage money entirely. We could transition to a fully private monetary system in no, no, in, in very short order. And I think, I think people would adapt to that very rapidly, and it would be a competitive money system. So, uh, so that there are many 
many tokens out there floating, some terrible, some great, but uh, it would it would uh, wash out and it, it, it would it would be glorious. I don't I don't think there's any chance of that of that happening anytime soon, unfortunately. No, I mean, that's why, you know, sort of I've called this this show or my my series sort of super excited. Why? Because I feel this is the most exciting time to be alive. Actually, if we weren't restricted yeah. But, you know, based on all these laws, uh, regulations, um, you know, policies that have been put in place, I feel that, you know, there is so much innovation that can happen. There will be fraud that happens. There will be pain that is incurred, but that pain cleans it out itself out very quickly. And if you're resilient enough, you stand up and you try to fix it and move forward again with the after recovering from the pain. But that said, you know, we have cryptocurrencies out there. We have technological innovation in new automotives, electric, you know, electric battery power. We have, you know, bio biotechnology. We have gene optimization. We have so many different fronts where innovation is really taking place. And how do we invest more in those? How do we educate the population to be ready for an environment where those innovations come to life and to fruition? They may take three, four, five years, but across that development cycle, I need to grow a community. I need to create awareness. I need to drive marketing and communication associated with that. I need yeah. to understand the repercussions of that. I need customer support, et cetera, et cetera. There are all these opportunities that create jobs and is right. to me the leap forward. It is, and I understand your frustration. I've been feeling it ever since I, I discovered that that yeah. Bitcoin worked. Yeah. You know, uh, I could see that, that that the future was was there. It was yeah. there in my hand. I could see it, and it's one of the most frustrating yeah. things about the, the 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 trajectory of history is that you know you can see the future, but you can't cause it to happen. Uh, sooner than uh, than uh, than it has been slated to happen, so it's very frustrating. Uh, I've known this for you know the better part of, yeah. of of ten years that that what you're describing is entirely possible, and we're going to get there in fits and starts. But you're right that the one thing that's holding us back is well, it's yeah. governments, right? It's governments colluding colluding with with private industry to 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 hold, to hold us back in this sort of revanchist. Uh, uh, a parade to to uh, to uh, keep the, keep the past, and 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 I think you're also correct that what it's going to require is a dramatic intellectual and cultural change in the public mind. Like we have to start believing in freedom again, and and until that happens, you know this beautiful future that you're imagining and I'm seeing, it's going to keep putting being put off more and more. Now that doesn't mean it's not going to yep. arrive. It will arrive. You know. It's going to get here at some point. Uh, we know this for sure, uh, but but it's being held back. Uh, but the systems that are holding it back are right now very much under pressure, uh, so that so that you know the, the the failing of the old order is becoming ever more obvious to ever more people. So, what do you think of? I mean, the, the governments and the the politicians that we have you know elected to be representing us, they are. They've been in power for many, many years. They are now professional politicians, right? They're, and, and do you feel, yeah. how do we change that, right? Because in a way, they and themselves have become corrupt. They are in a position where they've been doing this for the last 30 years. That This is all they know. And this is all they are now fighting to protect for the sake of, at the sacrifice of the nation versus their own, and, and to the gain of their own ego. Yeah, that's right. And I think, and you might be surprised to hear this, but I think in, a, in some sense, the politicians are the least of the problem. They might offer a solution, but right now the real problem is is, is not even the people we yeah. vote for, the people we elect, yeah. it's, the, it's the people we don't elect. It, it's the administrative yeah. state yeah. apparatus. Uh, in most countries, we've we've grown up this cancerous system of, of a whole uh, uh, a sector of administrators that that are, that are not they're not judges and courts they're not uh, legislatures making making laws and they're not even presidents the all as you say what these people specialize in especially the legislatures and and uh, executives or they specialize in winning elections that's what they're that's what they're good at uh, but they've outsourced the management of public life to this to these uh, to these executive agencies 
uh, that for the most part have permanent bureaucracies that are that live outside the public eye. They work very closely with the media to create this kind of feeling of of of, uh, uh, of, of an opinion cartel. And I would include uh, central banks in uh, among them. You know, but it's not just central banks; it's treasury departments and 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 disease mitigators and housing regulators and you know it's it's huge and the u.s we have about three million people in the that are directly involved in policy making and management who cannot be fired they're not subject to normal at-will employment so trump found this out he couldn't even fire his own bureaucrats he wasn't allowed to it's illegal so that system needs to 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 change um before i mean I, i would say in terms of politics this has to rank up the top of yep. the list of priorities that we have to do something to gut this administrative apparatus that people don't even understand exists even though but then it's you see more and more the reinforcement of actually governments and these institutions right because now we enter into a recession and guess who has to hire the people back generally it's the government we will hire we will create more employment we will you know engage more and more people so then all of a sudden the apparatus gets bigger and more bloated and we put in more policies in place to ensure that your job is protected and so then you know i i'm stuck in this virtuous cycle where i can't lay anybody off because mm -hmm. if i lay everybody off they're not going to vote for me and so i won't get reelected because i have had to lay off people mm -hmm. that are employed by the government and ultimately me who is in that role so it becomes a virtuous cycle, no? Yeah, and they and they fight tooth and nail. I mean, this is this is one of the reasons that uh, Trump became so demonized, you know, by by yeah. the, by the global press is that he actually thought to do something about about uh, this this problem. Um, but I just can't imagine anything more important. So I'm devoting a lot of my latest writings to this topic because hardly anybody else is writing about it. But I, I can't imagine a higher priority than to do with this. But it's going to be a rough transition. Um, you said something else that reminded me of an of a, of a, of a alarming problem. We're definitely headed yep. in towards a recession. <clears throat> and, and we're going to see a lot of high-end jobs eliminated from many of the industries that got bloated up during the during the lockdown period. And those people will have uh, nowhere to go. And uh, so what they're going to be looking for is job security. So they're probably going to uh, go to work for uh, public institutions and that sort of thing. So because where can you go to earn six figures yep. and not get fired? <laughs> the government. So, you know, right? So this is a major, major problem that we could be on the verge of seeing um, a replacement uh, situation take place. So we're going to see high unemployment among high-end professions in, uh, that were in the private sector. They fire them. They go to work for the public sector and become part of the administrative state apparatus. And that's, that's a near-term problem. That's why I say I, I can't imagine anything more, more important for political change than to than to gut uh, this the system and restore uh, something like a 19th century system where the the new political class can always fire the old bureaucrats right now but we I don't think have you that. you mean you wrote a book around beautiful anarchy right so you talk about anarchy and and beautiful in in the same sentence or in the same sort of three words right. and anarchy has historically right. always been portrayed as revolutionary, dirty, bad, violent. Um, and, and, and so right. how and, and what is your philosophy around beautiful anarchy? And, and you know, uh, yeah, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on what that really means and why is it beautiful? Yeah, the, I, I use the word anarchy as synonymous with a society yep. that manages itself. I'm going to get the light. I'm sorry. A society that manages itself. That's it. So, so it's not managed from the top down, but rather we trust freedom to uh, work out our problems for us. We don't always know, but that's precisely why we need freedom because we don't know. We let freedom discover the answers for us. That's what I'm calling um, anarchy. And it's a term that I, I know I'll never be able to popularize. I get that. Uh, and a lot of people misuse it as far as I'm concerned. But what it really means is, is a synonym for for freedom, and let's apply that in the in the realm of, of money. You know, we've always believed that we had to have one one money, and it had to be created by the government. I don't believe that. 
I think we can have many simultaneous circulating currencies, and they can be produced by uh, private institutions. And and so monetary anarchy, I think, would be ironically lead to a sounder currency and better and, and results. And so that's ultimately bringing competition to something that is historically a monopoly or has been a monopoly um, and bring yeah, competition to being able to print money and make money be successful. Yeah, for the better part of 6,000 years, actually, yeah. as far as anybody can tell. There have been little, uh, little periods of private money, but inevitably, you know, after the Industrial Revolution, it was a funny thing. Uh, in Britain, the uh, central bank had failed to anticipate the rise of of the division of labor that would lead so many people to work for in 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 large scale factories and need uh, small payments and uh, in, in money. The, the coinage in those days was mostly uh, the structured around the ruling class, so just large. Yep. Uh, large denominations were being coined. So what happened is that uh, all over rural England, uh, uh, there were private private mints started popping up. Uh, factories that used to make buttons started making coins, you know. And it became just a, a genuine monetary system. This developed very rapidly over the course of 50, 75 years. Uh, the, the entire Industrial Revolution in England was uh, enabled by this private, private, private coinage. And the coins were very beautiful and everybody wanted them and everybody was happy and it was great. Once the, once the Bank of England figured out what was going so, on, uh, they shut them all down. <laughs> <laughs> Inevitably, the, right? Do not feel like we're the, going through the similar sort of phase now, right? Where we've had this cryptocurrency be founded, 15, 18,000 if you look at CoinGecko oh, yeah. uh, in terms of number of currencies out there, tokens. And all of a sudden, you know, the central banks are realizing or the SEC or the CFTC or all these different bodies are trying to come in and try to regulate and say, no, we need to control this and we need to shut them down. They're all securities and they need to go through regulation and licensing yeah. through me. Well, all this really began in 2013, yep. when at least when the U.S. Treasury started uh, regulating the exchanges. So that was a disaster because now the exchanges are the ways you create on ramps and off ramps for, uh, for uh, the crypto between uh, national currencies and, and the crypto. You really do need a free market in that. And there was one developing until, um, until there was a crackdown. And suddenly thousands of institutions that had previously started were confronted with complying with egregiously expensive regulations. So then you ended up with just, you know, a half dozen uh exchanges in the u.s very very quickly it all happened in a matter of months that was a disaster but that was 2013. uh so so the, and, and people get confused about this it's great that governments can't really touch um uh the uh, a blockchain uh as as such as long as you stay within that yep. that ecosystem but but they can heavily regulate the on-ramps and the off-ramps by their control of exchanges. And so that set us back, I would say 50 years in terms of progress. By now we would have already had a booming, uh, active real-time market uh, for currencies. I think we'd be using them uh, more commonly than we use uh, credit cards by now if, if, if governments hadn't regulated the exchanges. So that's the, that's the really the great struggle right now. And then of course, um, the regulations are tightening with know your customer laws, yeah. but that's their entryway. It's the control of the exchanges is the control of everything. So they, they slowed us down. I mean, they can't stop us, but they're, they're slowing us down. And what other barriers do you think they're going to put in place? I mean, what, what else do you think they can do over the next sort of two to three years to continue to slow us down? Are they not going to be distracted with uh, trying well, to deal they, with this recession? Well, yeah, that's 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 true. That's that's true. That's going to be causing governments to go crazy. But the other uh, the other um, I would say hook they have into the industry is yeah. of course the tax system. So uh, they're they're trying to, now in the U.S. for example, trying to tax uh, 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 income that you haven't <laughs> even earned. Right. So if if you're if you're a hodler and holding on to Bitcoin and uh, it, it goes up and up and up, you're 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 expected you know, to pay taxes on the increase of the value, even if you've never converted it uh, to, to, to dollars. I mean, that's an incredible uh, intrusion and truly terrifying. I mean, it's a weird 
way to, to look at the uh, tax system. If I buy a painting and hang it on my wall, I mean, I'm looking at it. Okay, beautiful painting. I bought it for uh, $500. And, and if somebody's willing to pay me $5,000 for it, then I'm supposed to pay a tax on the increase in the value, even though I've never taken uh, uh, cash for that thing? That's really what we're talking about here. It's, 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 it's extremely creepy. Right? creepy. And, and to, to be honest, I've just moved from one country to another country. And I've had physical assets uh -huh. that I've had a second, my bed, you know, paintings on the wall, you know, a nice dining table. And the country I'm moving to is trying to tax me a 30% premium on the estimated value that they associate with the art, mm -hmm. the table, the chair, the co you know, the cupboard, etc. right? It's like, I mean, it's like I can't even move my physical properties that I've acquired in, into one for the fear of them missing out on a tax opportunity, right? And and to me, that's just, I think we've lost the plot in a way of, it's like. Yeah, for sure. Now, governments are becoming ever more grasping yeah. and greedy. Uh, and and as the crisis intensifies, and it will, uh, they're gonna they're going to get worse. So you know we're going through a, a real pains of the birth of a new world here. You know we, yep. you and I both see what it is and what it can be, and it's happening, but um, but much more slowly than than it should. And there's going to be a lot of uh, carnage along the way. Unfortunately, you know I I often think about this. It's it all has to do with the persistence of an idea. And that's what blockchain and Bitcoin really are. And digital idea. technology generally, it's an idea. Um, and and yeah. governments want to control that idea. And, uh, but, and they can do a lot of damage in the near term, but they can never succeed in the long term. I think about this often with the um, a short historical uh, analogy here would be the invention of a very important invention, one of the most important inventions in history, which is the horseshoe. So we figured out how to make horseshoes and attack them on the bottom of, of horses' feet and give them a lot more productivity and longevity and make them much more product productive in an agricultural sense and in every other way. Massively increased agricultural production throughout all of Europe. We don't even know who invented it, but it was a you know, brilliant uh, innovation uh, made out of iron and that sort of thing. Um, well... We just have to kind of do an imaginary conjectural history in which governments tried to stop the horseshoe from coming about because they thought it was exploitative of horses or uh, or the land the roads or, or whatever, you know, whatever. Or the roads, just, yeah, or the pathways, or, yeah, whatever. And they really tried to stop it. So you know, there's and this happened at about say the twelfth century uh, Europe. Um, now, what success would they have had? I mean, maybe in the short term, they could cause a lot of damage. But by the 13th, 14th century, do we, does anybody really believe we wouldn't have horseshoes just because governments didn't like them? No, we'd have them. Yeah, that's true. Because the idea was already there. Yeah, the, the idea is unleashed on humanity. People already knew how productive and brilliant it was. So, you know, it's just a waiting game to, you know, the, and, and a good idea always outlasts the, re, the regimes that are in power, always. And that's true. Interesting. I, I hadn't thought of it like that. So it's just a matter of a good idea that grabs foot at some point, no matter how you try to restrict it, it will sort of, yeah, find its way into uh, normalcy and into day-to-day -day life. Ideas are very persistent. They're, they're, they're more powerful than, than weaponry. In the end, because uh, uh, because you know, in the end, uh, governments not cannot control what what you're thinking. You know, they can they can do everything else to you, but humanity can still uh, possess an idea. And no matter how much they push this around and shove us into concentration camps or lock down our homes or restrict our travel, whatever, they can't make the idea go away. And the idea can last and last and last for for generations, <clears throat> even before it's been fully deployed. But at some point, uh, the idea will overwhelm the ability of, of, of the powers that be to control it. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, I love that because, I mean, in the end, people that are creative and so creativity, we need to foster creativity. We need to really bring and, and foster innovation as a result out of creativity from creative and different types of people versus creating averages versus creating normalcy, right? I mean... 
we we got to have a divergent people. We have to have a divergent society. This is precisely right. And and what's hugely important about about cryptocurrencies, we've never had a technology before that allowed for peer-to-peer payments uh, that were not in any sense uh, contingent upon geographic proximity before. So a weightless, spaceless unit of account uh, that allows you to transfer value all over the world, that nothing like that has ever existed. So this is a really decisive moment in history. It's It's a turning of a new chapter in the history of humanity. Where can people find out about you? Let us know. What book should they be buying? And where can they find out about you? How can they hear about you? And where can they follow you? Yeah, so I I, I founded the, the Brownstone Institute to directly address the crisis in the, in the world today and, and provide some light for how to get from, from here to there. And it's, uh, it's brownstone.org. And I'm dealing with, with really big topics, some of which uh, relate to economics, finance, and crypto, uh, but also examining this interrelationship between human freedom and, and public health that so roiled the world. And I don't believe that this struggle is going anywhere. So I'm, I'm at Brownstone to do that. I write daily also at the Epoch Times. You probably know that newspaper. It's one of the world's most prominent venues. I write every day on economics and finance there. So um, I'm also on all the usual Twitter feeds. Uh, very happy to engage anybody. I really appreciate being here today. Awesome. Thank you, Jeffrey. This was Stefan Roost and Jeffrey Tucker. You can follow Jeffrey on Twitter at JeffreyATucker. That's J-E-F-F-R-E-Y-A-T-U-C-K-E-R. And the Brownstone Institute at Brownstone Inst. That's B-R-O-W-N-S-T-O-N-E-I-N-S-T. You can also follow Stefan on Twitter at srust99. That's S-R-U-S-T-9-9. And you can find the Super Excited with Stefan Roost podcast on all major podcast platforms and on YouTube on the Stefan Roost channel. Thank you for listening.